This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This next story, well, it's our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And Alex today brings us an unusual story from a guy named Bill Koch, an entrepreneur with 1,300 employees. Here's Bill. You know, what I really like, if you look at a great painting, you can tell the love the artist did in creating it. And to me, that's precious. And that's what creates, in my opinion, great art. You know, is the love for what the artist was doing. And then food, too. You know, with an outstanding chef, you could taste that. Oh, my God, this tastes differently. Because he put a lot of love into it, which means he put a lot of energy and thought and everything else into it. And the same with a bricklayer. You know, if he really loves his work, he takes a little extra care in doing it other than slapping it together. And the same thing with wine. The great wines, you could really taste the love that the vintner had in making it. And so that, to me, is highly offensive when someone is faking it. Bill found out that four bottles that were sold to him as Thomas Jefferson's were fake. And then he found out that more were too. There's a huge code of silence because the faker doesn't want to know that he's faking. The middleman who's selling the wine doesn't really want to know if it's fake. In fact, there was one big auction house that was selling a lot of wine in New York in auctions, and they had to have this retailer deal with them to get through the laws. And uh, the guy who owns the retail shop said, why are you selling a lot of fake wine in this auction? And the head in-house counsel versus the outhouse council <laughs> said authenticity is an opinion and we're not in the opinion business we're in the business of making our margin so just ignore it and then the guys who buy the fake wine if they find out it's fake they want to get rid of it and get their money back so primarily they either dump it into the auction market or they give it to a charity to auction off or they find some sucker that will buy it. Some of the fake wines I bought were from charity auctions because the guy gave it to him and he got a tax deduction on it and some other <laughs> schmuck got him. Mainly me, <laughs> I got him. <laughs> and so I just said I'm, I'm out of on a crusade. A legal crusade. To shine a bright light on it. And I also, I guess because when I was younger, I was taken advantage of by people when I was naive. And so I said, I just hate being cheated. Hate it. One of the fakers actually offered to give Bill all of his money back. And Bill said, no, we're going to court. That's right. (laughs) Well, I ended up in one real long lawsuit, which we won hands down. And then after that, everybody wanted to settle with me. And there was one guy who said, well, I sold you these fake bottles. Would you give them back to me so I could give them back to the guy that sold them to me? And so I said, all right, I will. But then I engraved on the bottles counterfeit and gave them back to him. I haven't heard from him since. (laughs) (laughs) One big faker sent me a fax 
saying, why are you worried about fake wine? Even Jesus turned water into wine. <laughs> and I'm hoping I could get him into a court in the Bible Belt, <laughs> but I couldn't. <laughs> One guy had a huge collection of pre-World War II bottles of Petrus, which is one of the best wines in the world, and oversized bottles. And I bought a bottle of 1921 Petrus in a double magnum. And I opened it up. God, that tasted like the cheapest wine I've ever had. And I looked at it, and there was an article about this wine, about how it was found and who found it, etc and it was rated 100 out of 100. That's why I bought this bottle. And what the guy did, the faker, I mean, they were Hardy Runestock, poured in 1957 wine into the bottle and he made a fake label. We even found the place where he bought the bottle and we found where he had the labels printed. And he poured in 57 wine, put in some juice that made it taste old and smell old. I said what he did was put moose piss in it for me. <laughs> and we took this bottle to uh, Petrus and they said they never made big bottles pre-1945. And this one guy who had this huge collection of huge bottles called me up and said, are all our bottles fake? And we said, yeah. How do you know? Well, we went to Petrus and they said they never made them. <laughs> and they said, oh my God. And then uh, a month later, he called up and said, well, why don't you buy these bottles for me? And I said, why? And he said, well, it's good evidence. I said, well, I don't need to pay you. I'll just subpoena you. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, crusades turn out to be long and very expensive. <laughs> Bill has spent $35 million going after the fakers over what was originally a $400,000 wine fraud and some might say that's a crusade not worth it, spending 87 and a half times the cost. But for Bill Koch, it is. The crusade isn't about the wines. I mean, it's a little bit about the wines, but Bill could have bought new wines for far less. What it's really about to him is the rule of law. And Bill's pursuit of the rule of law ended up exposing an industry of tens of millions of fake wine. I try to say, well, it's bad business to cheat when you get caught. And great job, as always, by Alex. And thanks to Bill Koch. And you might be thinking, expensive wine? How does this relate to me? But if you have ever been cheated, passed along what we in New Jersey would call a fugazi. And I know I have a dear friend who bought what he thought was a real diamond for his wife and spent real money. And it was a phony. And it turned out the guy had been peddling a lot of fake diamonds and to a, a really a harmful detriment of a whole lot of families. A rule of law series, because let's face it, sometimes the cops can't get these people and sometimes, let's face it, uh, no one else can. Sometimes we, the citizens, have to go out and find these fakers. But if we can't bring them to a court of law, if we can't have the rule of law, then we have nothing at all. Bill Koch's story, his crusade against fake wine and again and against fake everything, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. And next, we bring you the story of Martin Licious and his company, Tempest Tours, an unconventional Texas-based tour company. Storm chasers, those wild individuals who ride around in search of the weather most people try to avoid. What kind of person does it take to do this? Well, let's find out with Martin Licious. I first became interested in uh, severe weather growing up in North Texas where we have big storms on a regular basis when I was a kid. Probably about four or five years old, um, we would have storms that come through that uh, the lightning would hit so close to our house that our whole house would shake. Also, right down the street from our house was a TV station called WBAP-TV. Harold Taft was the meteorologist on staff and uh, Harold is actually credited with uh, creating the American weathercast, TV weathercast. Before him, they would simply read the text. They would re- read the, uh, the forecast off a piece of paper. And then he, uh, being a, a full-blown meteorologist, decided to use maps to describe to the viewers what was happening. Uh, believe me, we're going to. Um, the computer will paint this on. Kind of fun to watch it, so let's just do that for a second. See? All the color comes on, all the symbols. All right. Still getting a little light uh, freezing drizzle up here in uh, Gage, Oklahoma. And so I'd watch him a lot, and uh, they had this old-fashioned black and white radar, and he'd show that quite a bit as well. And uh, I think that was kind of when I really became interested in weather. And then when I was about 12 years old, um, I asked my mom if I could build a weather station on top of the uh, of our house. She said, sure, just be careful, and I uh, started plotting storms as they came through uh, on a map, and I entered a science fair and uh, won the competition. I built a 3D model of a supercell thunderstorm. And the winner is... Eventually I got a car and uh, decided that I'd go out and film storms, and then about the same time that I did that, uh, I heard that there was there were these guys called storm chasers, and I met some of them, and then from there, that point on, I, I did it quite a bit. Martin eventually founded Tempest Tours, a company that lets you book storm chasing expeditions like cruises. That came about in, we started it in 2000. I'd say around 1999, I decided I was going to do it um, because I didn't think that, I didn't say to myself, let's start a storm chasing tour company. I just uh, was receiving a lot of requests from regular normal people uh, to go storm chasing with me and they were usually not able to go because of work so I thought what if we created tours and then we put out the schedule a year in advance people could get off work and actually go and that's when uh, Tempest Tours was born uh, back around 2000 you know storm chasing is kind of like fishing um, you know there's a good time of year to go fishing right um, But you go out and you go out several days fishing and some days are good and some days are not good. So it's a lot like that. Um, On a tour, you know, they're typically run four to 11 days in length. And of course, the longer the tour, the greater chance of seeing good storms, just like if you went on an 11 day fishing trip versus a a four day fishing trip. Um, Basically, they get up in the morning, we tell the guests when to meet us. Uh, we stay at motels, of course, 
and we'll meet in um, the lobby or, or somewhere and we'll do a little we weather briefing and uh, tell them what we, we show the maps and so forth and we tell them why we're going there, what we can expect that day. Then we all load up, head to that target, uh, wait for storms to develop and then uh, we, we track the one that we feel has the greatest potential of producing a tornado or just being a really good supercell. And you know, sometimes you'll have three or four storms form in your target area and you have to be very careful to put, pick this, the right one. And so we kind of sometimes hold back a little bit and wait until the best one, what we think will be the best one to form. And we've been very successful at that and then we track it and uh, if it's not moving too fast, we're able to stop several times and take pictures of it including tornadoes and lightning and so forth, which you can see uh, at our website. You know, people, a common question that people ask is how close do we get? And I say close enough to take great pictures, but far enough to be safe. So the best way to see how close we get is to go to our website or go to our Facebook page and just see the pictures that we've taken and some of our guests have taken. And you can get a good idea of how close we get. Now, while they're in the van, along the way, there are uh, there's a screen in the van, and so they're watching what the tour director is doing, and they're seeing, you know, the models develop. That's Kim George, Tempest Tour's customer relations manager. So he will be explaining those along the way, saying this is what the storm is doing, this is where we need to be, and so he will constantly keep them updated as they are going towards the target. And so they will wait, but when they actually get to visually see the storm, you know, coming up in the foreground, everybody gets very excited. So we get um, closer to the storm, we track it. Sometimes you have to wait a little while, but most of the time you're going straight towards the storm. Most storms develop in the afternoon. And um, once you are on the storm, then uh, depending on how the storm is moving, you position and you reposition and you reposition again because storms don't stand still most of the time. <laughs> when we're chasing a storm, we follow it till it's the end or till you lose the light. And sometimes that'll happen. And if you can't chase it when it's dark, sometimes they do. It depends on the storm. If it's developing tornadoes, sometimes we have, we did this past year, uh, chase a storm even after dark, and they actually saw some nighttime tornadoes, which was um, very good for the group. They thought that was amazing. And the only reason you can see them is because of the lightning. When it strikes, you can actually see the tornadoes below the storm. So that's basically a typical day. And then we uh, get lodging nearby, and they stay somewhere for the night. And then they also are developing a plan to, you know, begin that all over again the next day. We are not a luxury tour company. <laughs> uh, we have to tell them that, honestly, you know, when you're out chasing, and anybody who does that would know, uh, you'll be in Podunky, America, somewhere. And there's not a lot of options when it comes to places to stay. And sometimes there's not a lot of options for places to eat. And so you do the best you can with the environment that you're in. And we are very good about finding places that you can stay. But every once in a while, you know, at Motel 6, it may be the only place that you can stay for the night. So you do. Um, because the important thing is not the luxury of what we do. It's the chasing itself. And, and our guests do realize that, that you can't always be in, you know, a really swanky hotel. But... 
that's not why you give chase with this. You just need a bed, you need a place to get some rest, and then you can start the next day fresh. On a down day, uh, we will uh, head towards the next day's target. So a down day may be followed by a severe weather potential day. So we'll head towards that target and on the way stop at places that are interesting. Things that, you know, I've seen since I've been with a company that I never knew existed. There is a place in Kansas that's called uh, Monument Rock, and it's just this sandstone formation in the middle of nowhere. And you go on it, and it's just crazy. Uh, it could be the Badlands in South Dakota, Mount Rushmore, Devil's Tower, Palo Duro Canyon in the Texas Panhandle, or you might stop at a weather service office and take a tour. So we're always doing something interesting uh, every single day. We know this is our guest uh, vacation time. They want to see something interesting. We try to make it special when we're not on a storm. I mean, they're all coming for the storms. I mean, they don't really care about the other ones if they have a storm to follow. <laughs> so, but yeah, we try to make the times that we're not, you know, in a hard chase for the storm, we try to make those um, times as memorable as we can. And you are listening to Martin Licious and Kim George. And Martin is the founder of Tempest Tours. And Kim works there in the customer relations department. And if you want to see a storm, well, then Tempest Tours is the place to go. And TempestTours.com is the website address, TempestTours.com. And go on there and take a look at the gallery section and see what customers have seen. And so if you want to get up and close to a tornado, and I've always wanted to see one, we broadcast south of Memphis here in Oxford, Mississippi. Been here about a dozen years, probably about 15 uh, tornado warnings and storm shelter trips. But I'm always popping my head out to see one, and it just doesn't happen. One came within about uh, five miles of our town, cut across Highway 6, and then ultimately made its way up to Birmingham and up to Tuscaloosa, one of the big killers of all time, one of the worst tornadoes of all time in American history. So again, Martin Licious with Tempest Tours, his story, and so many Americans who are just fascinated by, well, just turbulence and tough weather. Martin's story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we bring you every kind of story. And now we bring you the story of a musician who has toured the country for decades, living his American dream as the drummer for a 70s soft rock band called Firefall. We told his story as a musician here on this show, and you can find that at OurAmericanStories.com. By the way, we do a lot of stories about music, stories of songs, stories of epochs, periods, people. My favorite, the story of Duke Ellington. It's not only a story about the remarkable musician, but the story of race in America in the 20th century. And it is searing, and it's heartbreaking, and it's beautiful. And again, go to OurAmericanStories.com and take a listen. That's Terry Teachout, and he writes for the Wall Street Journal, and there is no better culture writer in this country. 
Sandy, though, had another story to tell that we just had to share. He's just a natural storyteller. It's the story of how he met his wife. I met my wife in high school in Tampa. Her dad was in the Air Force, and my dad had just retired from the Army. She was a new kid in anatomy and physiology class. And she came in, it was, I guess it was a Monday morning, and signed in with the teacher. And we had tables where two people sat at each table. And I told my friend that I sat with, I said, Gary, she's mine. <laughs> and she went and sat down at a table across from us. And I got up, and I don't know how I did this, because I, back then I was kind of a shy guy. And uh, I walked over, I sat in her lap and said, hi, my name's Sandy. <laughs> and she goes, that's my name too. And, uh, and I asked her out on a date that day. And she says, well, I just moved here from Homestead and I have a boyfriend down in Homestead. And I was like, yeah, but he's in Homestead, which is part of Miami. We're five hours away. You know, that ain't going to work. And uh, so the next day we went on a field trip and she got on the bus and then I conveniently sat right next to her. And the, the gig I was playing, I was doing a Sadie Hawkins dance where the girls asked the guys to go out. And I, I told her I was playing this Sadie Hawkins dance at another high school. Do you want to come? And she says, well, let me think about it. So I, that was Tuesday the gig I think was Friday or Saturday and so before the gig she told me she would go and not only did she go but she helped me load in my drums and set them up and I was like this girl's a keeper fast forward to about a year and uh, her dad gets transferred to Alaska I was like oh man that's she may as well go to the moon because back in the early 70s, that's, you know, unreachable. So, and and it turned out okay, because that's when I went to North Carolina, ended up with the Drifters, and I don't know if we would have made it had I been on the road at that young point. Um, so, 25 years later, Firefall gets a couple gigs in Alaska. And I was like, Man, I wonder what she's been up to, you know, because to me, she was the one that got away. So I started looking for anybody with her last name. And I had this little speech I, you know, came up with. And I, you know, hit a bunch of dead ends. And then her dad answers the phone. And I said, I know this is going to sound weird, but my name is Sandy Ficka, and I went to high school with a girl named Sandy Fairley. And he goes, Sandy Ficka, the drummer? I was like, whoa, he did remember. And he goes, we used to love when you kids would come and practice at our house because we did that a few times. Then her mom gets on the phone, and she was a little bit guarded. And she goes, well, you know, Sam, Sam is her nickname, uh, which is good because we're not Sandy and Sandy, but we're born on the same day, which is weird. Um, 
So anyway, uh, she said, you know, Sam has two daughters. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I have three kids. And she goes, look, I tell you what, I'm going to give you her number. And if a man answers, just ignore him. And I'm like, okay. But she didn't explain. And then she goes, by the way, Sam's been divorced for two weeks. And I was like, uh-oh, this phone call just took a big turn. And so I called her house, and of course, this guy answers the phone. I said, okay, uh, just tell her I'll call later. And he said, well, who is this? I said, just a friend. Don't worry about it. And so I hung up. I called back, and she answered the phone. And it was like she sounded exactly like she did in high school. She says, I can't talk very long. I'm chaperoning the prom at Crater High. The next week we were flying to Virginia and we're in Newark and there was a rainstorm. And so we were delayed for three hours. So I went to the payphone, if you remember what those are, and I stared at the phone and paced back and forth for like 10 minutes trying to decide whether or not I should call her back. And so I called her back and ended up talking to her for almost the whole three hours, which was a very expensive phone call. You know, I talked to her like once or twice a week, and then it became three or four times a week, and then it was three or four times a day, and we kind of owned the phone company um, because there was no free cell phone calls back then. And uh, I invited her to come up to see us in Alaska which is what made me think of her. And so she came up, and as they say, the rest is history. She moved to Boulder to be with me. So we ended up starting a foundation called the Use Your Gift Foundation. And we bring kids in. We record a a whole project for them. We also try to get just their first steps into the music business. And I try to teach them as much as I can along the way without bursting their bubble because it's a really cutthroat business and I try to not, you know, ruin their dreams um, and just help them in a positive way. We do an EPK for them um, and we copyright all their songs and there's only two requirements that I have and one of them is a given because they're all very passionate about what they're doing but they have to write their own stuff. And then every year we do a fundraiser show at the Criterion Theater to raise money to pay the electric bill in the studio until the next show. So I don't really make a whole lot of money, um, but it's it's good for my heart and it's good for them and, and I love doing it. And you've been listening to Sandy Ficka and his story... And his bride's story, how they met originally, how they reconvened, how they recaptured each other's hearts. And by the way, we love those stories from you. How you met almost should be a running and regular feature. How you met, you can send to OurAmericanStories.com. We'd love to hear it. Old romances, new ones, tell us your story. And by the way, UseYourGift.org, help young people learn more about the music business, learn how to protect their intellectual property, and learn the business part of the business. 
Again, Sandy Ficka's story, his wife's story, Sam, here on Our American Story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and sciences, and straight to history, and your stories too. In fact, some of our very best work has come from you. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen, we'll produce them, and we'll play them. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, our next segment is about, well, our favorite subject here on the show. We talk the most in the studio about food, but on the show, most of our content, the biggest category is music. And by the way, about everything, from Sinatra to Miles Davis to Merle Haggard, Whitney Houston, Nirvana, everybody. There's no music we prefer over another, including Vladimir Horowitz's story, the great Russian pianist. It's all good, and music is music. And we're about to take a short yet fascinating trip down a road that leads to modern-day hip-hop. In the beginning, the hip-hop scene was a raw, raw experience. It was an underground music expression that was light years away from the commercial enterprise that it became. But one music producer took the low-budget, lo-fi rawness of hip-hop and put his own polished spin on it, making it accessible to the world. And the world has never been the same since. To tell this story we must first take two steps back to the early 1970s. Here's Greg Hengler. In his 1998 book, For the Record, Sly and the Family Stone, Joel Selvin writes, There are two types of black music, black music before Sly Stone and black music after Sly Stone. Though their influence on hip-hop wouldn't be fully realized until the birth of the genre, Sly and the Family Stone had a major impact on hip-hop artists and their musical tastes, as well as the music that they would end up creating. Here's music historian Jason King. Just as the rise of female singer-songwriters in the 1970s meant that people like Joni Mitchell were able to produce their own vision of who they were in the recording studio, you also have the rise of African-American artists who start to use the recording studio in a way that's incredibly creative and very different than the past. People like Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, and Curtis Mayfield, and particularly, I think, Sly from Sly and the Family Stone. These artists became the producers themselves. Here's record producer Arthur Baker. He was his own boss. You couldn't think of anyone telling Sly what to do in the studio. 
Here's Q-Tip from the hip-hop group A Tribe Called Quest. I can talk about Sly and the Family Stone for a very long time. Okay, play it. Sly Stone brought in a song craftsmanship to funk that wasn't there. He put his own spin on it, and out came something really unique and bold and just fresh. Here's drummer Questlove, who performs with The Roots for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. Because of the ongoing conflicts between Sly and his family Stone, he wound up doing his fifth record, There's a Riot Going On, by himself. Here's music historian Oliver Wang. Slystone was such a huge musical experiment. He would try playing with things that most other musicians hadn't thought about. He did it like what now we'd call a home studio. That's Sly playing bass, it's Sly playing guitar, Sly playing keyboards. Voice, he's programming, drum programming on the air, which is like early kind of hip hop. Some uptight producer would go, no, I don't want that. That sound, that doesn't sound like real drums. That was the point. It didn't, but it was something funkier. What he did in 1971 will be the gold standard for how musicians will create their music 10 years later. Here's Run DMC's Daryl McDaniels. The significance of the black musician, songwriter, um, singer, producer, whatever. To me, it all boils down to communicating the lives we live. Here's music historian Todd Boyd. It's a generation of people who don't have access to musical instruments, who don't have musical training, they're using music to create new music. We took what was available and created hip hop. Why you serve? Take the train to the plane. Drop school on church. It's like that. With hip hop, the role of the producer changes completely. You have producers sampling and using drum machines. Here's musicologist Fredera Hadley. The best producers, they have this ability to create a signature tapestry that makes all of these bits and pieces actually sound like an original composition. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. In the early 1990s, Dr. Dre basically put West Coast hip hop on the map. He was notorious for having this sound that was unlike anything else. Here's hip-hop producer Hank Shockley. Gangsta rap. That music took on a life of its own. And it gave the West Coast and L.A. scene its own voice. Here's record producer Tricky Stewart. I remember the shift when N.W.A. and Dre came into the scene Sonically, it was 
polished, but at the same time, it was like this super hard West Coast sound. I'm dropping flavor, my behavior is hereditary, but my technique is very necessary. Blame it on Ice Cube, because the setting get funky when you got a subject and a predicate. And you felt Dre's presence as one of the greatest hip-hop producers of all time, if not the greatest. Here's music executive Jimmy Iovine. When we started Interscope, I didn't know anything about running a business, and I knew even less about hip-hop. So this fellow John McClain was an A&R guy, brought this tape and said, we have to sign these guys. I said, who is it? He goes, it's Dr. Dre. It's his solo record. It used to be an NWA. I said, okay. I said, I don't really know a lot about it, but, you know, play it for me. One, two, three, and to the folks. Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the dope. And I didn't know a lot about it. I didn't understand the music, but I understood the sound. So Dre comes in. I said, Dre, who recorded this record? He said, I did. I said, no, no, not who produced it. Who engineered it? He said, I did. I said, wow, this guy's on to something. Here's Dr. Dre. Everybody has to have their own sound. You know what I'm saying? That's what makes it different, you know? And I'm a perfectionist. Because no matter how hard you work in the studio, no matter what you do, you don't know if people are going to dig it. It's, it's very easy to make a hip-hop record. It's not easy to make a good hip-hop record. When Dre came in with The Chronic, he was using live musicians and recording it very sparse. He's finding samples that we all overlook, pulling from funk and G-funk. You know, you listen to the sample on G thing. Here's RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan. He's hearing things that the average ear will never encounter in a song. And then when he hears it, he'll pull it out. He will pull it out. Here again is Questlove. I'll admit something to you. I was one of the initial naysayers of Dr. Dre's The Chronic. It was like everything I didn't want hip-hop to be. It was clean, louder, bigger. I wanted my hip-hop dirty. This DIY approach, this very low-budget, lo-fi approach to making music. That's what I felt hip-hop should and always be. It took me 10 years to really understand where Dr. Dre was going. And now that I make records, now I understand why this album is so important. What he did for hip-hop and for sampling is that he proved that you can make a record of the highest quality as a hip-hop producer. Besides crafting and popularizing G-Funk, a.k.a. gangsta rap, Dr. Dre is the founder and CEO of Aftermath Entertainment, and in 2008, he released his first brand of headphones, Beats by Dr. Dre. It was sold to tech giant Apple in 2014 for a reported $3.2 billion, the most expensive Apple takeover purchase ever. Dre's net worth spiked to an estimated $740 million. Dr. Dre got married to his wife, Nicole, in 1996. They have two children together, a son named Truth, and a daughter named Truly. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. 
And great job as always, Greg. And boy, we learn things here on this show. What a story about an American life, an American musician and producer. Dr. Dre's story here on Our American Story. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. In 1968, Tom Ross was the intelligence and operations officer of a unique Special Forces A detachment in the Republic of South Vietnam the elite unit also known as the Green Berets. In 1992, he was given an honorable discharge as a major in the Special Forces branch of the U.S. Army. In 2004, Tom brought a unique perspective to the view of American service during the Vietnam War with his book, Privileges of War, A Good Story of American Service in Vietnam. Today, Tom is the president and CEO of his own successful custom-designed jewelry firm, the Ross Jewelry Company, in Atlanta, Georgia. Here's Tom with his Vietnam story. My name is Tom Ross, and the American story you're about to hear is one of courage and selflessness, traits that Americans demonstrate with great ease when others are in danger or need of help. I'm almost 75 years old now, and the events I'm about to share with you took place more than 50 years ago, but I remember them as if it were yesterday. I'm always pleased to know that women, family members, and friends of a veteran might be in the audience. This is because in many cases, those closest to our veterans have absolutely no idea what they may have done or experienced. And that's simply because veterans often don't talk about their experiences. Well, I'm here to tell you about a few of them and what they did. And to all the female listeners, what you'll hear aren't war stories. While they occurred during a war, they're stories that I hope will touch you. They're not what you typically hear about those who served in Vietnam. So, welcome to everyone. I'll start with a bit of background. I was raised in Pensacola, Florida, home of the Navy's flight demonstration team, the Blue Angels. I used to watch them train out over the Gulf of Mexico while I fished from the Pensacola Beach Pier. They were magnificent and inspiring, so it was easy for me to grow up a patriot. And my parents had certainly done their part by getting me started in scouting. I'd been a Cub Scout and a Boy Scout where I earned the rank of Eagle Scout. My parents also made sure I was in church every Sunday where I served as an altar boy and a choir boy. 
So I've always thought of myself as having been an all-American kid. No one special, but someone who loved the country where he was growing up. I volunteered for service in 1966 after watching a news report one evening while waiting to have dinner at my mom and dad's home in Pensacola. As with many news reports in the 60s, the evening news often began with a report on action in Vietnam. I watched as two young American Marines struggled to drag another wounded Marine out of the line of fire. You could hear bullets pinging all around them. As I watched, something very strange happened to me that evening. I was suddenly struck as if hit by a bolt of lightning or drenched by a bucket of ice water. Maybe it was just a feeling of guilt. Whatever it was, I was immediately embarrassed that I wasn't fighting alongside the young men I was watching. And all I could do was watch. I couldn't do a thing to help. Only an evening or two before, I'd been at a fraternity sorority party, laughing and dancing without a care in the world. But watching the struggle before me and without fully understanding why, I suddenly felt compelled to join the service and go to Vietnam. So skipping my college classes the next morning, I was standing at the door when the U.S. Army recruiter arrived at his office. After enlisting, I applied for Officer Candidate School and was accepted. Just before graduating from OCS as a second lieutenant, I applied to the U.S. Army Special Forces, the elite unit also known as the Green Berets. I thought that if I were going to Vietnam, I should probably get myself as well trained as I could if I were going to survive the experience. Then, after more than a year of intense unconventional warfare training at the home of Special Forces in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, I finally received orders sending me to Vietnam. I arrived in country during the infamous Tet Offensive of 1968. During a New Year's truce, the North Vietnamese Army in Viet Cong launched a surprise attack on nearly every major city in South Vietnam. Nha Trang, where I was arriving, happened to be one of them. So my tour of duty began with a bang, and it never got dull. I'd just been picked up at the helipad by a driver who was to take me to the 5th Special Forces Group headquarters to draw my orders and equipment. The driver was winding his way through city streets where one of the recent battles had occurred when suddenly and out of nowhere, the street in front of us erupted in gunfire and explosions. The driver slammed on the brakes and we slid to an abrupt sideways stop. Dust boiled up around us and we both jumped out of the Jeep and took cover on the far side. Here, I will remind you, that we were on our way to draw my equipment. So at that moment, I was unarmed and without a weapon. When I peeked up over the Jeep to see what was happening in the street ahead, a troop truck was stopped in the center of the street and South Vietnamese soldiers were firing into a burned out building where enemy soldiers had been hiding. 
As bullets impacted around us, I thought, this is crazy. I haven't been here 15 minutes, and I'm not quite ready to be shot. I was still looking over the Jeep when through a cloud of dust and smoke, I saw something else. A young American woman standing alone right in the middle of the action. She was behind the truck and she held a long lens camera. As gunfire ricocheted around her, she would occasionally lean out and snap pictures. As I watched her move around, I was amazed by her boldness and tenacity. But my thought was, she's gonna get herself killed. Suddenly there was an explosion after South Vietnamese fired a grenade into the building. Shortly, two enemy soldiers appeared in windows with their hands raised. With the battle ended, I walked over to the young woman to check on her, and the driver followed me in the Jeep. You okay, I asked. Yes, just fine, she said confidently. Need a ride out of here, I asked. What? No, I'm working. I'm a war correspondent. This is my job, she snapped. She was obviously a little annoyed with my question. Okay, okay then, I said. We'll be on our way. Take care of yourself, I said. Over her shoulder as she walked away, always do, she answered. But she hadn't gone far when she stopped and turned around to face me. She smiled and said, thanks for stopping. Then she turned and rushed away to begin documenting the capture of the enemy soldiers. Let's go, I told the driver. She certainly doesn't need us. When I was finally dropped off at 5th Special Forces Group Headquarters, I collected my equipment and orders. Our Special Forces medics were very well trained. If necessary, they could perform an appendectomy. I watched one day as our senior medic performed a very complicated surgery that saved our cook's life. And while they were also trained to use virtually every weapon on the battlefield, what our medics enjoyed most was going out into the local village to treat sick children. I always knew when they were going because they came around collecting goodies from back home to give the kids they treated. Those men were a very special breed. Amidst all the war action in Vietnam, it might be surprising, but there were also warm, even tender moments in Vietnam. And many of those were provided by young, dedicated women who served in the American Red Cross. Many called them the Donut Dollies. I'd been in Vietnam for about three months and hadn't seen the face of an American woman in all that time until this particular day. I was preparing a map for a mission the next day. I began pouring a glass of iced tea uh, and didn't turn around when I heard someone say, we'll seat you next to Lieutenant Ross. But then I smelled perfume. So I turned to see who or what had been seated next to me. My teammates weren't above playing pranks, but when I turned and saw who had been seated, my brain just quit working. Seated next to me was a very pretty young American woman. For a moment, I honestly thought it was a hallucination. She was so out of context, 
But then the, the hallucination spoke. She said, it's full. Not understanding what she was saying, I said, excuse me? To which she replied, your tea glass, it's full. Well, it was more than full. It had overflowed and tea was now running all over the table. I was immediately embarrassed, but my guest smiled, giggled, and said, it's okay, Lieutenant. This happens a lot. She helped me clean up my mess and we finished lunch together. Then I took her on a tour of camp. I introduced her to members of the team and as I did, their faces lit up like a child on Christmas morning. The effect of the presence of these young women was amazing. They risked their lives visiting forward bases that could be fired upon by the enemy at any time. Their work of visiting and entertaining American servicemen was meaningful and they accomplished a great deal by simply being there, maybe more than they even know. I didn't volunteer to go to Vietnam to kill anyone. I simply believed that I was there to help a country in its fight for freedom. For me, it was as simple as that. In fact, the day before I left home for Vietnam, I told my mom and dad that um, I hoped I could accomplish something good, something meaningful. In a war, I wasn't quite sure what that might be or if doing something good was even possible. And as time passed, the idea of doing something good had all but faded because I had also been exposed to the horrors of war. But then, August the 2nd of 1968 dawned. What began to happen on that day quickly turned into a very complicated situation. At about 11 o'clock in the morning on August the 2nd, I received a radio call from one of our outposts. It was Meloc Outpost. And they had called me to tell me that three enemy soldiers had turned themselves in. The senior advisor asked me to come as soon as possible. This was an unusual event. Having arrived in Vietnam in January, by August I had become a seasoned advisor. So when I arrived at the outpost and saw the men, I immediately recognized that they weren't enemy soldiers at all. Rather, they were Montagnard tribesmen, peaceful mountain dwellers who stayed pretty much to themselves and harmed no one. When I asked questions through my Montagnard interpreter, Aat, the man who seemed to be the leader of the three, told stories of terrible abuse by the enemy who had enslaved them. Mang Quang was the man's name, and he said that the villagers were used as crop growers and pack animals to carry military supplies. He also told sickening stories about the abuse of women and children and he said that it had gone on for years. After some time, and now with tears in his eyes, Mang Quang reached out and took one of my hands with both of his. Then, in his native language, as Aat translated, he begged for help for his village. There is no way I can adequately express to you how his pleas and the desperation 
in his voice made me feel. I could only think of my own family in a situation like the one he had just described. And as if what he had told me wasn't bad enough, through odd, but look, looking directly into my eyes as he spoke, Mang Kwong told me that if he didn't return to the village with help by the next day, his wife and two young children would be killed. One of the other Montagnard men confirmed what Mang Kwong had said by saying the enemy had done that before. Based on what I'd already learned, the village was located deep within enemy territory, and attempting a rescue meant placing the lives of a rescue team at risk under unknown conditions. I also had to consider that this could be some type of elaborate trap. At the time I was pondering what I had just been asked to do, I was 22 years old. Still considering my response, I looked at the handful of American advisors who manned the outpost. I looked at the Special Forces patch on the shoulder of one, then I looked at the Special Forces crest on the green beret of another. The crest read, Diopresso Liber, Latin for Free the Oppressed. And you're listening to Tom Ross, a Vietnam Special Forces vet on the privileges of war. And by the way, we got this story from a listener and a special thanks and send your stories to us. Really, we do them, we produce them and we put them back out like we're doing right here today. And again, they really are not just some of our favorites, but some of our finest stories. And by the way, when he said those words, I didn't volunteer to go to Vietnam to kill anyone. And he told those words to his parents. He really meant it. Let's pick up where we last left off. That was the Special Forces motto. As I thought, it occurred to me this was a real chance for our team to actually live the motto, and it was an opportunity for me to do the something good I had hoped to do. Ultimately, what every veteran listening would likely tell you is that if you're wearing the uniform of an American serviceman or woman and you're asked for help, there really isn't a lot to consider. If you have the means, you provide the help. So I told Ah to tell Mang Kwong that we would give him the help for which he had come. Yes, yes, was echoed multiple times around the inside of the bunker as my enthusiastic teammates voiced their feelings about my decision, and I was glad to hear that they felt as I did. Something listeners should know, as an American advisor, I didn't command Tutanak's Vietnamese troops. I and the other advisors simply did just that. We advised them. So if I were to, to lead this mission, I would not only need Tuta's troops, I would also need his permission. So as soon as we got back to Trung Dung, I went looking for Tuta. When I found him, it was about two in the afternoon and he was eating a late lunch in his quarters. 
He motioned me in when he saw me at the door and invited me to have lunch with him. But I told him I, I would be missing lunch that day. There is something I do need to, Ty said. I need about two companies of your best soldiers. Then I told him about the Montagnards and what I wanted to do for them. When I finished, his only question was, is this mission important to you, Trung Wee? I assured him that it was, and I told him that it would give meaning to my service in his country. Tutai paused, and there was a brief silence as he seemed to give some thought to my request. He put his chopsticks down across his rice bowl, wiped his mouth with a cloth, and dropped it on the table. Then he turned to face me. Trung Wee, he said, you can have whatever you need. Then he asked, will you command this mission? When I said, yes, I will, he surprised me by saying that he would come with me. With troops committed, the next thing I needed was a way to get them to the village. So as I had many times before, I went to my radio and called the 281st. When I told the 281st duty officer, Lieutenant John Weir, that the mission was going to be a rescue effort to free families, rightly, he, he asked to know more. I told him everything I knew, and I was bluntly honest with him. I told him how little I knew about the area and how very dangerous the mission could become. There was a brief pause, and then he said, just tell me where you need us and at what time we'll be there. To alert the villagers what was happening, um, I had arranged for an Air Force speaker plane flown by Major Ken Moses to broadcast a pre-recorded tape of Mang Kwong in his own voice. The tape instructed the villagers to gather where our troops had landed. The message blared loud as Major Moses made pass after pass over the jungle at treetop level. And with the circling gunships, I feel reasonably certain that the Viet Cong soldiers guarding the village were more than a bit confused and intimidated. After all, they were in the middle of nowhere and had never been bothered as they used and abused the villagers. At the end of the day, when we assembled back at base camp, we had 82 men, women, and children. There were smiles on the faces of the villagers, as well as the troops, pilots, and crews who had rescued them. However, the mood quickly changed when Mang Kwong went through the crowd looking for his wife and children and discovered they weren't there. Because the villagers had been kept separated for years and many taken away, um, not even Mang Kwong knew how many were still in the area. All he was sure of was his family wasn't there. He collapsed at my feet, sobbing. Emotionally moved by Mang Kwong's obvious grief, I made a promise that I wasn't sure I could keep. I knelt beside him and told Ah to translate. We're going back, I said. We'll go back in the morning and we'll find your family. The next morning, the rescue team reassembled and we launched our second effort. 
After an explosive encounter with a small enemy unit, we made our way to a small cluster of huts where Mon Quang expected to find his family. Sadly, they weren't there, and of course he feared the worst. He was sure they had been killed. But as I was trying to decide where we would look next, I received a radio call from the team leader at our original landing zone. He told me that more villagers had arrived as the message broadcast from the speaker plane had instructed. I couldn't believe it and couldn't wait to tell Mang Quang. I reached out and took Mang by the arm and told Ah to tell him what I'd just been told. Then I told him to tell Mang that I felt sure his family must be there. I can't tell you how excited he became. I just hope that I wasn't wrong. It was a little after midday when we popped out of the jungle and onto the cornfield that has served as our landing zone the day before. I immediately began scanning the crowd looking for a family that might be missing a father. I didn't see one until the crowd parted slightly. Then there on a large rock at the top of the cornfield sat a woman and two children. Again I reached out and put, pulled Mon Quang to my side and pointed through the crowd to the rock and asked, Mon Quang's? No translation was needed. When he turned to face me again, tears trickled down his cheeks. But this time they rolled over a smile that covered his face. I put my hand on his back and with a gentle push said go. Mong had barely crossed half the cornfield when his family saw him coming. They all jumped down off the rock and ran toward him. When they met, I witnessed one of the most glorious reunions I've ever seen. There aren't words to fully express how I felt at that moment. It had been a great day to be an American soldier. It had been a great day to be an American soldier. Those are the words of Tom Ross, Vietnam Special Forces vet. And he's writing about the privileges of war. And you don't hear that too often, do you folks? Nor do you hear stories like this. It's Vietnam as a win, as a loss. Did you protest, didn't you? But what about the life there? What about the lives changed there for better and for worse? And my goodness, those words, those words free the oppressed. Special Forces motto, as anyone who knows the Special Forces knows. And as he told us all, we had a chance to live that motto. We had a chance to be the words that were on our arms. Let's pick up where we last left off. A few days later, another villager came to me and said, other families were still missing. So once more, we would head back into the mountain jungle. Because word of this unusual rescue mission had begun to spread, a, an entourage of media went with us to cover the mission. Among them, a CBS news crew. Bad things had been happening in the U.S. Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King had both been assassinated. So I suppose there were some in government who wanted to share a little good news with the American public. 
When we arrived back at the village, I was asked by the CBS News reporter, David Colhane, where he could say we were. After I told him in the middle of nowhere, I showed him my map and explained that we had flown off the map. Trying to come up with a location name for him, I told Mr. Colhane that I had flown observation missions in the area before and had often seen tigers. So I call it the Valley of the Tigers. I loved the name and so did he. Great, he said, that's where I'll say we are. So when the story of the rescue aired in the States a few days later, Walter Cronkite introduced the piece as taking place in the Valley of the Tigers. I still smile when I hear him introduce that particular news segment. One of the more unusual Allied operations in recent months took place a few days back in a Viet Cong area 30 miles west of Nha Trang called Valley of the Tigers. CBS News correspondent David Colhane was there. During the third and final day of the rescue, we experienced more encounters with our Viet Cong enemy, and they were becoming bolder. While all this was going on, an unarmed American woman turned up right in the middle of our landing zone. She arrived at A502 that morning with the other news folks who were all male. When I saw her, I took her aside and we had a discussion about whether or not she should go on the mission. I was concerned about her safety and felt I might be distracted by the presence of a woman in enemy territory. I told her, trying to gain some sympathy for my point of view, that I had grown up in the South and taking care of a lady seemed second nature to me. Well, she wasn't buying my story, and she assured me that she was no Scarlett O'Hara. Long story short, I told her that she wasn't going. With that, I had boarded the lead chopper, and we took off. When I looked back down at her, she was standing on the runway with her arms tightly folded, and she didn't look very happy. Later, after the landing zone was secure, I called for the press helicopter. When it landed, I turned to shield myself from all the blowing debris. When it took off, I turned back around, and guess what? There she stood. I decided that if she had that much tenacity and courage, I'd let her stay. But I did assign an American advisor to watch over her. Sergeant Cook's count of still missing villagers totaled approximately 45 people, so when we finally had that number on the landing zone, I called for a pickup. All the villagers and most of our troops were returned safely to camp. Lieutenant Thomas Ross was in charge of the rescue operation on the ground. How many people do you think you were able to bring out now? Right now, up to date, we've got a total of about 165. These are all mountain yards. Right. Uh, they are mountain yards who have been in the area under VC control now for the last eight years. As the last group of helicopters that lifted off with the villagers and troops, I was down in the jungle setting up our perimeter 
secure until they returned. The rain became so heavy where we were that I lost all radio communication with any friendly unit. Occasionally I'd try to reach my camp for word of extraction, unfortunately without response. When it seemed clear that darkness would fall before helicopters reached us, I gave the instruction to gather gear, pulled in our security, and we started down the mountain. As we moved, I radioed my camp in the blind with a message that we were moving into the jungle. In the blind, for those of you who don't need don't know, simply meant that I was sending a message even though I didn't know if anyone could hear it. I waited for a response, but again, there was none, just static on my radio. We had gone about, I guess, 50 yards and were just about to enter the jungle when my radio began to crackle and I thought I heard my call sign, which was Bunkhouse 02. When I answered with my call sign and said we were moving down in down the mountain, a response came back, this time loud and clear. Zero two, hold your position. This is bandit leader and we are inbound to your location. It was Lieutenant Weir and he was coming after us with his own rescue team. When I looked out across the swirling sea of clouds before me, I, I couldn't imagine how this was possible. Later, I learned how it was possible. Against regulation, three helicopters had taken off in a storm and headed west. They flew low over the Songkai River because they knew it would take them somewhere in the general direction of our position in the middle of nowhere. When Lieutenant Ware came back on the radio, he said they couldn't see very well and had no clue where they were and told me to look for them. So I told everyone else to start looking. They're out there somewhere, I said. As I said, the sky was filled with gray clouds, but there were thin breaks and the last few rays of the setting sun, and it illuminated small openings here and there. Everyone was straining their eyes and search of our rescue flight. Then from one of those tiny openings in the clouds came a spiraling flash of sunlight reflected from the wet windscreen of Lieutenant Weir's lead helicopter. Hollywood couldn't duplicate the flash I saw and considering it later I decided it was divine in intervention. I immediately radioed Lieutenant Weir to turn south and in less than a minute he swooped down over us. Right behind him was another troop carrying helicopter and a gunship that flew cover for our extraction. They were Army Olive Green, but to those of us on the ground, the helicopters looked like great green angels as they settled in to pick us up. I watched until everyone was loaded, then jumped on board and yelled, go, and we lifted off. As we flew through the clouds back to camp, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say that I whispered a short prayer of thanks. And I sat amazed and grateful and thought of how incredible it was 
that these men had risked their lives for ours. Ultimately, if Lieutenant Weir and the other men of the 281st hadn't defied regulations and come back for us, that day could have ended very differently, and there might be someone else telling you the story of the rescue in the Valley of the Tigers. This is a rare occurrence in this war, an act designed to give life and freedom in a place and time noted mainly for death and destruction. David Cohane, CBS News, in the Valley of the Tigers. A couple of days after the rescue, uh, Meng Kuang found me. He, it seemed he had asked Ah for an English lesson. When he walked up to me, he reached out and took one of my hands in both of his, just as he had the first day we met. He looked directly at me, and once more, with tears in his eyes, he said softly, Thank you, then bowed slowly. For all we had risked, and for a whole we had endured, for me, that was enough. I hope thank you is enough for you for having endured my American story. Thank you. And what a great piece of storytelling. Thanks to Tom Ross, Vietnam Special Forces vet. And by the way, Tom is president and CEO of his own successful custom design jewelry firm, the Ross Jewelry Company. And that resides, and he does too, in Atlanta, Georgia. And special thanks to Greg Hangler for getting the story and getting it into shape. And thanks to the listener who brought this story to our attention. My goodness, he and his men sacrifice all to go and rescue strangers. And then they're the recipients of that same selflessness. Lieutenant Weir and his men defied regulations and came back for us, Tom Ross said. There's a real chance someone else might have been telling the story of the Valley of the Tigers. Lieutenant Weir and his men hadn't done that. All through Vietnam, stories of grace, stories of tragedy. Tom Ross's story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 